Hey, how are you guys? Happy New Year. Um, if we've not met before, my name is Colin. I am one of the pastors on our communities team here. Um, and it's really good to be back with you. Uh, I've been gone for a few weeks as my wife and I had our first baby, uh, which is pretty sweet. You should try it sometime uh, if you haven't. Uh, three weeks ago tomorrow, her name is Frances, and she's wonderful, and we love her. Uh, and part of why I tell you that is because right now I'm feeling a little bit like this. We'll try it. <laughs> just, just tired. Just, just like, and so just as a coverall, if anything I say offends you, <laughs> um, confuses you, or just simply bores you, um, if I say something that doesn't quite make sense, or if a joke just doesn't land, um, I just want you to think, oh, that's cute. <laughs> He's a tired guy. He's a sleepy guy, so I'm going to have mercy on him. Um, and just look over my offense. Can I get your mutual agreement for that? Yeah. Great. Um, with that in mind, turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Come, Holy Spirit, would you move in power? Would you make the scriptures come alive to us? We're in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 21. It says this. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer her a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. If you're anything like me, this passage makes you uncomfortable. Uh, most of the time when I'm teaching, I try to come up with something thought-provoking, something challenging to grab your attention, maybe something that will create like a little knot in your stomach, just for fun. Um, but this text does the work for me. It's like, easy, just read the Bible and the knots are created. Just think about the sheer details of this text for a moment. A desperate woman of a different ethnicity approaches Jesus asking for mercy. First, he ignores her. So, okay. Not a great start, Jesus. Um, she asks him yet again. And then this time, Jesus gives a response in which he compares her to a dog. Uh, wait, what? Did Jesus just call this woman a dog? Uh, and then she presses the comparison further. In this bizarre turn of events, Jesus ends up praising her great faith and maybe begrudgingly healing her daughter. Uh, this story raises all sorts of questions and perhaps even some doubts for us is Jesus more calloused and cold than I like to think? In tame terms, um, is Jesus being rude? Uh, or perhaps if we're more honest, the question we might ask is, is Jesus being racist? 
Is he showing prejudice against this woman precisely because she is of a different ethnicity? If that's the case, is Jesus still sinless? Or is he simply perpetuating the corporate sins of his people group? Because last time I checked, racism is definitely a sin. Now, when we open our Bibles and come across provocative passages like this, we have a few options. Um, The first of which is that we can ignore them. I have a dear friend of mine who expressed how a lot of us feel when he said, you know, most of the time when I get to a passage like this, I just kind of keep reading and wait to come back to it another day. Closely related to this is option two, we can minimize them. Sometimes, even out of a genuine desire to honor Jesus in the scriptures, um, we'll just act like a passage like this isn't that big of a deal. Say something like, well, it can't mean that, because we know that Jesus was sinless, so that's that. But if you fail to raise honest questions, you set yourself up for a shallow faith at best, and at worst to be shipwrecked by doubt when you can simply no longer squish down the hard questions. Option three, um, we can judge texts like this. By contrast, if we're not careful, we can take our set of vocabulary, our presuppositions, our worldview, and we can use them as this measuring rod to judge and scrutinize the world of the Bible. And in so doing, we take our modern, Western, post-Enlightenment categories to judge a work of ancient, Eastern, pre-Enlightenment literature. Perhaps just to prove to someone else or someone on Twitter that we're on the right side of history. The problem with all these approaches is that all of them make the same mistake. All of them flatten the text so that it can't actually speak. They seek to kind of quickly alleviate the tension of something in this passage, and they actually fail to learn from the scriptures and to embrace them on their terms and in their context. So my invitation for us tonight, before we jump in, is to adopt a fourth way, one that I'll simply call wrestling honestly and faithfully. By wrestling honestly, we avoid ignoring or minimizing a challenging passage of scripture. Um, The writers of the Bible and leaders of the early church Believe this text to be important. That's why it's in your Bible. And if we want to be a part of that tradition, then we need to be honest about its presence in our Bibles and the questions that it raises. By wrestling faithfully, um, we choose to be faithful not only to Jesus, but also to our convictions about who he is, about his goodness. And we also remain faithful to the scriptures in the form that they come to us. Because they don't come to us as a 21st century work of black and white doctrine, but they come to us instead as a complex ancient, sophisticated form of art that simply won't give away all of its uh, truths at this cursory, quick read. Wrestling honestly and faithfully. Are we up for that? Three of you are up for that, and the rest of you are like, what's going on? Uh, (laughs) All right, with all that in mind, I want us to give a short roadmap of where we're going, just so you can kind of stick with me while we're in the weeds. First, I'll reread the passage and just try to get us to have bearings on what actually happens in the story and in the details. Then I want to present a few options for how do you go about like understanding and interpreting a passage like this. And then finally, I want us to zoom out of kind of the heady academic mode and ask what does this mean for people like us who are trying to follow Jesus in 2020. With that, look down with me, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So, so far, Jesus' ministry was almost entirely Jewish, specifically in the town of Galilee. So he has interacted with and healed some non-Jewish people, but his time has been in and among Jewish people primarily um, until now. 
So we find that in Matthew 15, Jesus withdraws away from Jewish territory and into Gentile or non-Jewish territory. Uh, The text tells us he withdrew to Tyre and Sidon. And if you were a first century Jew, you'd hear Tyre and Sidon followed by a dun-dun-dun. Like that would be the sound of, this is where like you like laugh and think, oh, that's cute. He's tired. Uh, One writer says that Tyre and Sidon can serve as this code name for pagan land. These people are not Jewish. They are not followers of Yahweh. So it's likely then that Jesus will run into some non-Jewish people. Verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Matthew describes the woman who approaches Jesus as a Canaanite woman. And as modern readers, we'd likely read this and think, okay, she's from Canaan. Um, But the language is actually much more loaded than that. If you know your Bible, you know that the Canaanites were the most persistent and aggressive of Israel's enemies throughout the Old Testament period. That they were people driven out of their land by Israel and whose idolatrous religion was seen as a constant threat to Jewish faithfulness to Yahweh. So to an ancient Jewish ear, to hear Canaanite translates two things, enemy and danger to Israel's faith. Matthew 15 is actually the only appearance of this adjective in the entire New Testament, in part because it's a word that's fallen out of use at this point in time. So at this point in time, if you wanted to talk about someone from that region, the the word you'd likely use is actually Syrophoenician, which is your free seminary vocab word for the day, uh, which served as the more current ethnic term, or perhaps the more factually and politically correct title would be Syrophoenician. This is the term that Mark uses when he tells this same story in his gospel. Yet Matthew uses Canaanite, a term that is loaded with strong racial and religious connotations. And by doing so, he draws our attention to the deep racial wound that existed between these two people for nearly a thousand years. The spotlight is on, the stage is set, for us to read the drama unfolds as this woman says, the text says he, she came to him crying out, Lord, son of David. Now notice her language. Lord can simply just mean master um, or it can be a title of respect. But son of David is a deeply Jewish messianic title. She's not only acknowledging Jesus's Jewishness, but she's actually pushing it a step further and attributing to him a messianic identity. Uh, it's odd And actually surprising, because whether out of desperation or out of faith, this woman who would naturally be Jesus' ethnic enemy comes to him with both reverence and a request that believes and assumes that he's powerful. Have mercy on me. Heal my daughter. And how does Jesus respond? So Jesus said, go in faith. Your daughter is well. Nope. Verse 23. Jesus did not answer her a word. Think about that for a second. Not a single word. Not a peep. He doesn't say a thing to her. He doesn't even respond to her desperate requests. I almost imagine that he just keeps walking with his gaze set forward. What is going on? I mean, this rubs us wrong because this is simply not the Jesus that we're used to. Uh, What happened to the Jesus who has compassion on the crowds and is quick to heal people? Uh, And yet, this is exactly what you would expect from a Jewish teacher during Jesus' time. Jesus is playing the part, so to speak. So 
we're left with the question, what's going on in Jesus' head? Is he being rude? Is he thinking about something? Is he ignoring her because she isn't worthy? Uh, the text doesn't give us an explicit answer. All that we know is that Jesus is silent, and the story doesn't end there. It says, So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Translation, get rid of her, will you? She's driving us nuts. She's loud, and she's inconvenient, and she's in our way. At the very best, they want him to grant her request and just send her off. At worst, and maybe more accurately, they want him to give her a stern go away. At this point, Jesus speaks, verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. It's not clear who he's answering here. Um, is he speaking to the woman, to the disciples, or perhaps he's speaking demonstratively, kind of out in the open, almost so you can imagine him staring straight into the camera and saying this. But what he does say is clear. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. This phrase echoes Jesus' command earlier in Matthew 11 and 12, where he sent the disciples out and told them to go only to the lost sheep of Israel. So it seems that Jesus' messianic mission was first to Israel. And by implication, this woman was not in his scope. She's not his primary mission. And this, again, rubs us as wrong. But it's helpful to keep in mind the broader story of the Bible. What Jesus is not saying is that his mission has nothing to do with Gentiles. Um, the writers and the prophets of the Bible believe that God was going to indeed rescue the world, all of humanity. And that he was going to do that by partnering with humanity, specifically by partnering with a small tribe that became a nation known as Israel. And so prophetic writers use this image of Israel as a light that would then spread light to the world, to other nations. So Jesus can't just bypass Israel because it is through Israel that God has promised blessing will spread to the world. And so here Jesus reflects again what any Jewish rabbi would say about the Messiah. The Messiah's mission is to Jews first. And despite the fact that they've rejected him so far, Jesus just won't seem to give up on them. And by implication, this Gentile woman would not be in line to receive from the Messiah just yet. There's more work to be done. But this is still odd. Because if you, if you know Matthew, Jesus has more than once now ministered to Gentiles. We have, he ministered to a soldier and to two demon-possessed men earlier in the gospel, but all of whom were Gentiles. So why, why the rush now? Why is he suddenly in a hurry? Even more odd is that if Jesus seriously intends not to help this woman, why doesn't he just send her away? Look down, verse 25. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. If I had to venture a guess, I'd assume that most of us at this point would give up. We'd turn around, we'd go home, and we'd stop asking Jesus for anything. But this woman won't accept no for an answer. She continues to plead with him and tries asking again. Jesus replies this time, verse 26, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yikes. Uh, it's just like this cringe moment. I mean, Michael Scott sums up my feelings well. <laughs> it's like, man, Jesus, things were going okay until you called that woman a dog. Uh, but let's, let's break this down for a second. First, it is helpful to note 
uh, that the word for dog here is perhaps better translated little dog. The Greek word is chihuahua. Uh, <laughs> that's for free. Uh, it seems that Jesus has in mind more of a house dog than just some sort of stray. Um, and some will argue that in light of that, you know, this, this is not really that offensive as it seems because, you know, who doesn't love their beloved Labradoodle? Uh, but second, notice Jesus doesn't technically call her a dog, um, but is painting a parable that many of us live every night. Not me, because I don't have a dog, don't feel a need for a dog, but maybe you have a dog and you feel a need for a dog. Um, you sit down for dinner you know, with your children and your little dog, your chihuahua, is under, the, under the, the table. You're obviously going, not going to give all the food to the dog. You're going to feed your children first. Nevertheless, Jesus' dog metaphor is offensive. He uses a softer word, um, but only kind of a pet-loving dog park Portland culture um, would suggest that that would reduce the offense. Um, in Jewish culture, a little dog is just as unclean as a big one. So in this, this comment, it reiterates her non-Jewishness. It makes it clear that she's not a part of the people of God. She's a Canaanite. She's an outsider. So feel the tension of this moment. So far, Jesus has ignored her. Then he made it clear that she was not a priority of his. And now he's compared her to a dog, an unclean outsider. This moment would be tense even if there wasn't a racial element to it. But this story, again, is loaded with racial strife and baggage. And yet she persists. Remember, Jesus said it's not right for the children's bread to be thrown to the dogs, to which the woman replied, verse 27, yes, it is, Lord, or actually it is right. Why? She goes on, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What's fascinating here is not only does this woman buy into Jesus's offensive metaphor, but she's quick to turn it back on him. She actually pushes back. She argues. She disagrees with Jesus. One writer calls this a robust refusal to accept the apparent implication of Jesus's words. Or Martin Luther says that she traps Christ in his own words. How can he get out of this now? I like that. And the thrust of her reply, of her argument is, there's always enough left for the dogs. There's enough for them and for the children. And by implication, there's enough for me. Verse 28, then, and then this is in your Bible, this is an emphatic turning point. Think of this as an exclamation point, a dramatic then. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Again, this is a bizarre story. Uh, it's as if Jesus makes this sudden shift in tone from ignoring her to honoring her, from passing her by to praising her. It's worth noting that in Matthew, Jesus doesn't give this high of praise to anyone, not to any of his Jewish followers, not to um, any of the non-Jewish followers. In fact, just a few chapters earlier, he called his own disciples, you of little faith. Yet, who do we find with great faith? The Canaanite woman who had the audacity to ask Jesus again and again. And the result is that Jesus praised her faith. He responds and he grants her requests. Okay, up for air. How are we doing? Good. A few of you are good. A few of you are in 2019 still. The rest of you are good. 
Hopefully now we have some handles on this story and what happened, um, but now we're still left with a, a few interpretive questions that anyone has to answer. First, why was Jesus silent? That's a question that anyone asks. Why did Jesus use the dog metaphor? And then third, what made Jesus change his mind to ultimately praise this woman and heal her daughter? No matter where you land on the meaning of this passage, or if you're going to get to a meaning of this passage, everyone has to come up with an answer for these questions. So as I've read and researched about this passage, I've noticed there are roughly three primary interpretations that people tend to take. Um, these aren't technical terms, but they're my way of trying to synthesize and kind of distill down the interpretations I've seen. So I just want to warn you up front, it's about to get really nerdy for about five to seven minutes. Um, but I think this is really important because this is one of the most complex and dis um, honestly like argued passages in the New Testament. And I think it's helpful for us to think through it together. With that, we'll call the three interpretations as follows. Um, the progressive critical interpretation, the messianic mission interpretation, and the instructive prophetic theater interpretation. Uh, let's dive in with the first progressive critical interpretation. This view has gained rise in the last few decades and essentially answer these questions in the following ways. First, Jesus was silent due to cultural prejudice of a typical Jewish man. He was Jewish and a product of his culture carrying the same ethnocentric bias as everyone else. And because of that, he ignored her as any Jewish man would. Second, Jesus utilized the dog metaphor because prejudice and racism were already ingrained in his vocabulary. He was comfortable with calling her dog because he saw her as lower and less than Jews. And then Jesus changed his mind and healed her because her persistence and belief were strong enough to override his presuppositions and coax him into going against his prejudice. And again, this is just explaining the view. And what we can conclude from this view is that Jesus was, like anyone else, human, and only human. And like any wise teacher, he can't be followed on every point and certainly should not be seen as the embodiment of deity. Uh, this view cannot be described as a Christian view, just to be clear. Because uh, at this point, you have stepped outside the boundaries of Christian confession. But aside from the departure from orthodoxy, the biggest holes in this view to me are, first, uh, it doesn't make sense of Jesus' other interactions with non-Jewish people. Think of the centurion in Matthew 8, the Samaritan woman in John 4, the demon-possessed men in Matthew 11, or even Jesus' choice to go to Tyre and Sidon to begin with. Second, um, it doesn't seek to understand the biblical theological background of Jesus' mission to Israel. It kind of just runs that over with a set of existing presuppositions. And then finally, it feels like a weak account of Jesus' choice to not only heal this woman's daughter, but to honor her publicly by praising her faith. Okay, one interpretation down, two more to go. You ready? You got it? A few of you have that in you. Relevance is just around the corner. Next, let's discuss the Messianic mission interpretation. This view in one form or another is proposed by a number of scholars, and the gist of it is this. Uh, Jesus was silent because he's committed to his mission to Israel, then the nations. So his silence is one of thinking and wrestling with whether or not healing the woman would compromise his mission and whether or not it was the right thing to do at that time. Jesus uses the dog metaphor as a non-offensive or moderately offensive uh, metaphor to express his missionary priority. In short, it's not as offensive as we might think, but simply rubs us the wrong way. Third, Jesus changed his mind because in this exchange, Jesus has learned from this woman 
and he's discovered a broader vision of the will of God and his messianic identity. So from this view, we can conclude that while Jesus was God, he was also human. And as such, he, like us, learned over time more and more of what God's will was for his life, and specifically about God's will um, for his mission as Israel's Messiah. And what Jesus learned is that his mission to the Gentiles doesn't have to start later, but can begin now. There's enough bread to go around. Now, before, before I provide a short critique, I, just, I think this is a totally valid view. Um, there, if you land here and you read the text this way, you're in great company. In fact, I think some of what this view says could totally be what is happening here. But in my opinion, the holes in this view are two. First, I think like the progressive critical view, I don't think this view does a great job of making sense of Jesus' other interactions with non-Jewish people uh, or of his choice to go to Tyre and Sidon to begin with. Second, I believe this view attempts to curtail the offense of the dog metaphor by simply saying it's not that offensive, which personally, again, personal opinion, I don't buy. Um, in a sense, the problem, the problem of the metaphor is addressed, but it doesn't seem well accounted for by this view. Finally, I want to present to you the third, what I believe to be the strongest interpretation of this text, and it's the instructive prophetic theater interpretation. In this view, Jesus is silent in order to play the part of a first century Jewish rabbi. Like an actor on the stage, he is playing the part in order to later make a contrary point. Jesus again uses the dog metaphor again to embody a view that he does not hold while reflecting po popularly held Jewish opinion. And in so doing, Jesus is provoking a response of faith from the woman. He's drawing something out of her. Much like if someone were to say to you, you can't do it, you're not smart enough. The first thing you want to do is go and prove that person wrong. Uh, one scholar sums it up well. He says, a good teacher, a good teacher, which Jesus, again, he's a teacher. A good teacher may sometimes aim to draw out the pupil's best insight by a deliberate challenge, which doesn't necessarily reflect the teacher's own view. Jesus is, ironically enough, playing devil's advocate. Uh, Jesus, in this view, Jesus does not change his mind. I like that chuckle. I appreciate that. <laughs> just keep that coming. That feeds me. Uh, in this view, Jesus does not change his mind, but responds to the woman's request after receiving the response he's hoped for, a response of faith. And in so doing, he's reflecting his true character and heart towards those who were on the outside. So from this view, we can conclude that as a teacher, Jesus used this moment to instruct both the woman and his disciples about the nature of faith and the love of God. As a prophet, Jesus articulates and then critiques the presuppositions of the cultural current of his day. Further, he critiques his disciples who saw this woman as nothing more than an inconvenience, if not an enemy. And then in theatrical form, Jesus taught and prophesied by playing the part of a Jewish teacher, only to turn that part on its head reveal God's true character, and draw out great faith from the Canaanite woman. Now, I want to be fair. There are still some weaknesses to this view. I think it's the strongest, but there's some weaknesses. The greatest of which is, first, it could feel like alleviating the tension by just saying, gotcha. Like, Jesus didn't really mean it. He was just joshing. He's just playing, um, which is a valid critique. Um, second is that it could feel like dismissing the shape of the messianic mission to Israel um, first, then the nations. And I would argue that Jesus still maintains that mission, but invites us to see it more broadly and beautifully than we dared to believe. 
Despite those critiques, I believe this interpretation is the strongest for a couple reasons. First, it makes sense of Jesus' interactions with non-Jewish people across the Gospels, and then in Matthew in particular. Second, it explains Matthew's strange, but I think dramatic use of the word Canaanite to grab our attention. Third, it fits the immediate context, fitting Jesus' choice to go to Tyre and Sidon to begin with. And then the story that immediately follows this is where Jesus feeds 4,000. And at first, it feels like this weird repeat, like, wait, didn't I just read about Jesus feeding 5,000? Now he's feeding 4,000. But this time, the main twist is that Jesus feeds 4,000 Gentiles. So it's like Matthew's exclamation point on this story saying, yes, there is enough bread of all things. Um, the view corresponds best, I think next, this view corresponds best with Jesus' character in general. This is the Jesus we know who has compassion on the crowds all throughout the gospel. The gospels constantly say that, that his guts turned, that's the Greek word, it's saying that, it's, that his guts turned with compassion when he saw crowds. And then finally, this view makes sense because there's precedent for Jesus doing this type of theater all throughout the gospels. He chose 12 disciples to make a prophetic statement about a new people of God, a new 12 tribes. Um, he asked questions of the Samaritan woman that he knew the answer to in order to teach her about the nature of faith and worship. He cleansed the temple to make a prophetic statement about worship and God's judgment against false worship. And on the examples could go. Through every action, interaction, again, Jesus is a teacher. So his agenda is to teach us about life in the kingdom and to prophetically challenge how we are currently living. Okay, how are we doing? Nerdy parts behind us. So if, if weird titles of interpretations are dripping out your ears, you can come back and join us now. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. I wanna zoom out of kind of the heady Bible nerd space for a moment and just raise this question. If in this story, Rabbi Jesus' agenda is to teach us and to challenge us. If that's what he's always out to do, is to everything he does to teach us and challenge us, what is he wanting to say? Like many passages, this story speaks to a thousand different truths. There's a lot that can be drawn out of this text that we don't have time for. Um, we could talk about the implications of this text on ethnicity, race, and prejudice in the family of God. Uh, to our early question, just to be clear, um, is Jesus being racist? The answer is an emphatic no. Uh, the story of the scriptures is unequivocally about the unification of all races and ethnicities under King Jesus. All across the scriptures, the heart of God bleeds for every tribe, every nation, every color, every tongue. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus himself will bleed for every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. Further, we could talk about Jesus' appraisal of this woman and Jesus' radical, beautiful affirmation of women throughout, throughout the Gospels. We could talk about love for our enemies and people who we find inconvenient. All of this is good and so worth our time. Um, but today, I think Jesus' main agenda for us is the same as it was for this woman. That in this story, Jesus teaches us about the true nature of faith and challenges us to relentless trust. Practically, I think this is by far the greatest thrust of this text. If you walk away with nothing else, hear this. Just slow down for a moment. Imagine the perspective of this woman. The text made it clear that she was from Tyre and Sidon, and Matthew went a step further to call her a Canaanite. In other words, this woman is a part of a long history of Israel's enemies. Further, this is a vulnerable and desperate mother aching for her daughter to be made well. 
She's a mother whose daughter is demon-possessed and ill. She's likely been up at night with worry. She's lost sleep. She's probably tried everything in her power to see her daughter healed. She's desperate. And so hearing of Jesus, she takes this risk to approach this Jewish Messiah, knowing full well that she would be an ethnic enemy. Yet she has the audacity to come out and to meet him and plead with him. And what she met with? Silence. Have you ever had a moment like that before? A moment of desperation where you ask God to step in, where you ask him to do good, to intervene, and you hear nothing but your own voice. Maybe praying for someone to be well or for that son or daughter to follow Jesus. Or even just for a short experience, a short encounter where you might just feel his presence again because he's felt so far away. And silence is all you get. Met with silence, uh, this woman persists. She asks again on her hands and knees before Jesus in desperation. And this time she's not met with silence, but what feels like a divine go away. I'm not interested. You're not my priority. Maybe have you ever felt that way before? Like you're scrambling for an answer and some sort of solution and as if God just simply doesn't care. A moment where it seems like God is certainly not all that good or that loving, maybe not that powerful. Maybe after praying and begging God for something, things only got worse. We've tried again and again and again to keep faith, and it feels like maybe, just maybe you're wasting your time, and God has moved on without you. Yet, where most of us would likely go home or give up, maybe call it quits with this whole Jesus thing, which I've just watched so many friends and people I've known walk away from Jesus. So it's, it's, it's incredibly common. I had a woman approach me this morning and talk about how in our city it's just so hard to not walk away from Jesus. When most of us would call it quits, this woman clings to a belief that Jesus will do what is right, that he'll do good, that he'll actually be good. And so she asks again. She argues. She presses back. And it is that tenacious belief that Jesus points to and says, that. That is great faith. What? That, that. That right there is faith. It's precisely when she has been given every reason to not have faith, to no longer trust, that the true nature of her faith shines forward. And Jesus sees that faith and he says, that's it. That's, that's what I'm looking for. He's moved by it and then he responds. So it seem that faith is not maintaining naive peppy, positive thoughts about God, which is good news for us who are a little more melancholy. But that faith is holding on when it feels like you are drowning. That faith is the choice to trust that God is good even when he doesn't seem good. When circumstances don't seem like it and he seems far, to believe that he's good anyway. That faith is continuing to ask, maybe even beg even when God seems silent, he's passing you by. It seems that faith is leaning in, continuing to not only think that God is good, 
but continue to live and act and ask him over and over again as if he's good, even if in your bones it doesn't feel like it. Put most simply, faith is trust. And only, trust is only trust when there's something at stake. In fact, trust isn't trust if it's not difficult. If it doesn't require you to, to worry, if it doesn't draw you out, it's, not, it's simply just not faith. It's not trust. I think for many of us, Jesus is inviting us to that kind of faith. A rigid trust, a determined trust in his goodness, despite when it doesn't feel like it. Now, I remember back in December 2015, I took my lunch break. I was working at Apple just a few blocks from here and walked the holiday lit streets of Portland when this thought came to my mind. I don't know if I believe in God anymore. Now, this thought didn't just come out of nowhere. Um, it was the culmination of lots of other thoughts and experience over a long period of time. Months and months of feeling like God wasn't there, like he'd been silent, like my prayers had gone up to the sky and gotten a return to sender stamped on them. Um, I was pretty depressed and in a pretty dark place. And honestly, it felt like God had left me behind. I had just done a lot of ministry and had moved here in parks. I'm like, God, I sense your calling. And it felt honestly like I had been chewed up and spit out by God. And I just wasn't sure if he was there and if he was there, if he was good. And for me, the journey from that place to where I am now, where I love Jesus more and I trust him more now than I ever have before, I genuinely think he's the most beautiful person. Uh, that journey was complex and multifaceted. It doesn't look the same for anyone. But one thought stands out in my mind. Not removed from that first thought was this other thought, or call it a prayer, whatever you want it to. It was, okay, Jesus, I will continue to press on and live as though you're there and you're real, even though it doesn't feel like it. Now just note, that's not a very magical, holy, or inspiring prayer. Um, but I think for me, that's, that was a step of faith. That Jesus was inviting me to keep seeking him, to keep adopting all the rhythms and practices that make up a life of faith, to keep chasing him and begging him and going after him, to keep pressing on even when it felt like I was drowning. And perhaps for you, the invitation remains the same, to hold on, to trust. Um, I believe Jesus, just like this woman, because he's a teacher and he, he's interested in our, who we become, he wants to draw out our faith, or if you prefer the term trust, which I think is in some ways more helpful. So the question that remains for us tonight is, what does great faith look like for you right now? What, what would that look like for you to continue to have faith and to continue to press in and fight and follow Jesus and ask him, where does Jesus seem silent right now? Maybe even in a season where it feels like you haven't heard from him for a long time, or there's somewhere, somewhere you've asked him and he's just been silent. Maybe there's somewhere that you've asked again and again and it feels like he's left you. Like you resonate with this woman, like he's just walking right past you without saying a word. Maybe he's even doing something for other people, but it feels like to you that he just doesn't care. What if it's that moment that Jesus is inviting you to keep asking all the more, to keep chasing, to wrestle and perhaps even beg and argue for him to be who you believe he is, to be who he said he is. 
I believe Jesus will respond to that. It's that kind of tenacious, relentless, thick and thin trust that Jesus points to and says, that is great faith. What if through the very circumstances that make you want to leave faith behind, Jesus is actually trying to draw out of you faith, to ignite in you a type of faith you actually haven't had before, or to refine it so it's something that's beautiful and deeper and more robust than you had imagined possible for you. When I think of my life, at the end of the day, when all said and done, I want Jesus to say of me, oh, Colin, you have great faith. That's what I want. I want him to look at me and to say, you have great faith. You've trusted me. You've pressed in. You've believed who I said I was. And I don't have all the answers for you. Um, life is really hard. I don't know. I Christians just don't say this. Sometimes. Life is hard. Sometimes life sucks. But God is faithful. And he's, I think, through the, those circumstances, drawing out of us to become people of trust. My hope is that we'd be moved and drawn to that same end and that we become people of relentless trust. Let's stand and pray together.